Good morning, my name is Russell, and I serve as one of the elders here at FBC. Today we'll be reading from the scriptures in Luke 2, 1 through 7. In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was one of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son, and wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. You may be seated. Thanks, Russell. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Wow. That was less enthusiastic. Merry Christmas. Wow. Merry Christmas. There we go. Holy cow. What are you worried? You're not going to get what you want? Or I don't know. Sheesh. Good for you. Let's pray. We're going to be in Luke chapter 2 for a few minutes this morning as we think about uh, the Word of God this morning. God, we thank you for your love for us and sending us Jesus, our Savior. We pray, God, that as we look at your Word this morning, even as we celebrate um, your birth through this season, our prayer is, God, you would fill our hearts with joy and peace that can only come from knowing you and having relationship with you. So God, we pray our time in the word would bear fruit for your kingdom in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7. Let me uh, start at the beginning and at the end, and then we'll get into the middle as we uh, navigate through this brief passage. The beginning here mentions a person. His name is Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, chapter 2, verse 1, you see that? Caesar Augustus. At the end of it is uh, an unnamed baby. I know who, you know who it is. It's Jesus. She gave birth to her firstborn. So it starts with Caesar Augustus, ends with Jesus, the firstborn of Mary being born. And what we, we have to understand when we look at Luke chapter 2, 1 through 7, even when we're thinking about Christmas and everything else, what we have to understand, these seven verses are designed to get us to contrast Jesus and Caesar. The idea is to think about Caesar Augustus and to think about Jesus and think about the contrast between these two individuals. The, this description of Jesus' birth here is seven verses. Of course, there's more to it in Luke 1, 2, and 3. But the, the description of the events of the birth itself are what, seven verses. There's less uh, than 120 words to describe the birth of Jesus. When, when you gave, uh, had your baby maybe, you probably described it in more than 100 words. <laughs> and here we have the birth of the Messiah and it's uh, 100, 115 words depending on the translation to describe Jesus' birth. And you say, well, why such a brief description of Jesus' birth? There's a lot of information that isn't included that may might want to know about. And we, so why isn't more information about Jesus' birth included? We have to understand this about the Bible. The Bible is very, very efficient and very, very purposeful and intentional. The Bible has a plan when it's telling us something. I don't know if you've noticed this about your Bible. It's big. 
Many of us struggle to even think about reading through the entirety of the Bible, nearly 900,000 words. A lot of words. Less words than the Harry Potter series, I might add, for those of you struggling with the Bible, but you've read that three times. Ooh, now it's getting real up in here, isn't it? That's, that's not polite. It's Christmas. Come on, easy, Greg. But if, you, if the Bible included all the information that we really wanted, do you know how big it would be? But the Bible is, is extraordinarily efficient. What I mean by this, the Bible has a purpose to tell us something about what God is doing, and it's not going to tell us anything else. It's going to tell us precisely what is needed for us to understand what God is, is, is up to. We can say it this way. What the Bible tells us matters, and what it doesn't, doesn't. It's kind of like that really quiet person that maybe you know in your life or your family, and they're really, really quiet, but everybody knows they're really insightful, but they don't say much. But when they do, everybody gets quiet, and they want to hear what they have to say. That's what the Bible is like. It, is, it doesn't talk about a lot of the things we wish it would about Jesus and his birth and what is going on, but the things it does talk about, we have to understand, are critically important. Here's what we're going to understand. Jesus' life, unlike our life, and unlike the life of any other person who has ever lived, was lived 100% consistent with his purpose. From birth to death to resurrection, there was not one moment in Jesus' life that wasn't 100% completely consistent with his purpose. Now, you and I, when we were babies and infants and toddlers, we had very little, if any, control over how we lived according to our purpose. In fact, it seems when we're babies, our, our plan is to live inconsistent with our parents' purpose, at least. Jesus, on the other hand, being the eternal God, God who has always been and always will be, who when he is born as a baby, he is in total control. And his life from his birth to his life on earth, his death and his resurrection is completely according to his purpose. This is is what we discover here in these first seven birth verses. So Jesus' birth, the manner in which he was born, gives us insight to this purpose. It gives us insight into how Jesus is going to live. It gives us insight into what Jesus is going to do. And it gives us insight into who will connect with his purpose most readily. So how Jesus' journey begins tells us how it will proceed and how it will end and what his purpose will be. So we're going to look at this in, in two or three parts. Verses 1 through 3, how Jesus begins. How Jesus' journey begins. That's the title of the message today if you haven't picked that up. First of all, let's look at the world of Jesus. Because Jesus isn't going to work the way this world works. In those days, a degree went out from Caesar Augustus. Caesar Augustus, of course is emperor of the Roman Empire, really the first uh, emperor, the founder of the Roman Empire as we know it, as we knew it at that time. And this was the registration that occurred when Quirinius was governor of Syria. So when he sent everybody to be registered, some of you went, well, which registration is he talking about? And then it provides clarity. The, the registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and many of you went, oh, that one, okay, now. That, to the exclusion of all the other ones I was wondering about. And so this is the world, this world of power and politics and influence. In fact, this world, though, wasn't unknown. 
This world wasn't unexpected. I want to look just briefly before we jump into this passage at Daniel chapter 2, beginning in verse 31. It will not be up on the screens. You're welcome to turn there if you want. But I'm just going to look at a few verses. Daniel chapter 2 describes a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had. Nebuchadnezzar, of course, was the ruler of the Babylonian empire. And he had this dream, didn't understand what it meant. And then Daniel came to interpret this dream to Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what Daniel has to say to King Nebi, for those of you who like veggie tales. <laughs> you saw, O king, and behold, a great image. This image, mighty and exceeding brightness, stood before you, and its appearance was frightening. So Nebuchadnezzar saw a big giant statue. The head of this image was fine gold. Daniel is going to explain later that the head of this image, the statue, symbolizes the Babylonian empire. That's you, King Nebuchadnezzar. The head of this image is gold. Its chest and its arms were made of silver. Two parts. This second part of the statue is understood to be the Medo-Persian Empire, which is going to come after the Babylonian Empire. Its middle and thighs of bronze. And that would be the, the great empire that came after the Medo-Persians, and that is Greece, Alexander the Great. And then finally, in verse 33, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. And this, of course, is the great Roman empire that comes after Greece. And this is what Daniel says in verse 34. As you looked, so, so Nebuchadnezzar is looking at the statue of Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and then finally Rome. As you looked, a stone was cut out, by, but not by human hands, and it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. The iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken into pieces and became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. So these great giant empires become what? Chaff that's blown away in the wind. Not a trace of them could be found, but that stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Daniel continues a little bit later on in verse 40. He said, there shall be a fourth kingdom, describing here Rome, strong as iron because iron breaks pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And that is exactly what Rome was like. This military force that was completely and totally unstoppable during their day. But listen to how Daniel describes what happens during the time of the Roman Empire in verse 44 of Daniel chapter 2. And in those days, let me read it properly, and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forevermore. So what Daniel tells us is during this time of this fourth kingdom, which we understand to be the, the Roman Empire, this kingdom of God is going to be set up. It is going to, this, this mighty, mighty mountain is going to crush this great statue. And so you, like me, would probably think there's going to be a great military battle. There might be some expectation that suddenly somebody is going to swoop in and destroy this great Roman Empire, this kingdom of iron. God's kingdom is going to overcome it, but Jesus is, is born into this world of power and might, but he's not born into it as one powerful or mighty. That's what we're discovering here is this contrast between Jesus and 
Caesar Augustus. Jesus is not coming in the same terms that the world does. He's not going to conquer in the same way that, that Rome does. In Rome, power is gained through conquering militarily and through political intrigue. And Jesus doesn't do any of that. No military conquest, no political intrigue. Caesar Augustus, being emperor, beat out two other so-called emperors in his fight to rule over the Roman Empire. One of them, I don't care, I don't know his name, it's probably hard to pronounce. But the other one we know very well, his name was, I don't know, Bible trivia time? Anybody know who the other guy was? Mark Antony. So he competed with power, and when he finally defeated Mark Antony, he and his girlfriend, Cleopatra, had such a bad attitude, they ended their own lives over it. And so then, Caesar Augustus, born Octavian, Caesar Augustus then has taken over. So Caesar Augustus has showed skill in all of the worldly things that you need to rule the world, to lead a powerful military to victory, and to be able to pull the levers of political intrigue to get things to line up your way. He was a master at it, and as a result, he ruled the world. This is the world that Jesus was born into. Through war and cunning politics, he founds the, the Roman Empire. And we might say this, at the time that, that Jesus was born, there was no other person on the planet as powerful as Caesar Augustus. I might even go so far to say this as a little amateur historian. Up to this point in history, God excluded there has not been anyone up to the first century that was as powerful as Caesar Augustus. He ruled over more of the world than anyone ever had up to that point. Dude always won. He never lost. And he ruled everything. And Jesus is born into this. And this is how Jesus' journey begins. Born into this world with a ruler more powerful than anyone has ever been on planet earth and you would expect if he's going to destroy this kingdom he must be born powerful but he's not do you know that's the contrast that's the point that that Luke wants us to get he doesn't say much but he says this Caesar Augustus big time Jesus I'm sorry who that's the contrast he wants us to make. And, and in fact, the prophets expected this. This shouldn't have been surprising. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 17. This is what we discover about this God who was born. If you want to consider Caesar powerful, let's think a little bit about God. Isaiah 40, verse 17. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are counted by him as less than nothing, and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God, or what likeness compare with him? So the nations are as what before him? Nothing. nothing. Nations to us seem particularly important, don't they? We live in a nation. We happen to find ourselves living today in the United States of America. That nation, for I would suggest most of us, if not all of us, is kind of important. It's kind of where we live. Kind of would like to live in safety and peace and prosperity as we all would like. So the nation seems kind of important to us, right? I mean, am I wrong? Some of you are nervous it's about to get political. It's not. I'm just making a point. Simmer down. Holy cow. The election isn't even until next year. Cow. He's on the edge already. What does God think of nations? I'm sorry, you what? There is nothing to him. There's nothing. 
not, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm overstating the importance of nations according to the scripture. They are counted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. Things which to us, if the United States were to fail to exist or to change significantly, we would sort of freak out, wouldn't we? That's not how God views the nations. It's also echoed in Job chapter 12, verse 23, how God views the nations. He makes nations great. And he destroys them. He enlarges nations and then leads them away. At his whims, at his desires, at his purpose. A nation does not oppose him. And so God is so powerful, the nations are as nothing. I want to try and explain this to you using an illustration. And it is, I'm just one preface, it is terrible. When I share this illustration, the, those of us who have been around a while will think I'm too young. And those of you who are very young will think I am too whole, old. And many of you will find it inappropriate. Now I've got your attention. <laughs> there is a film that came out many years ago, but I find it a good film. I enjoy this film. It was called, here we go. Look at Jason's excited. It's called The Matrix. Yeah, see, we got some laughs. or heard some groans. Okay, good. Got you all on board. Fish on. So, if you don't know the story of the Matrix, there's this guy, and he's in a pro computer program. You'll get it. You can stream it. Anyway, he is trying to discover that he actually is able, by the way he is made or whatever, that he is one of the most powerful people in this computer program. He can do things nobody else can do. But he doesn't know this. He doesn't know it. He's trying to figure it out. And he's learning it. And he's fighting these bad guys, the agents, Agent Smith in particular. Now he's always fighting him, it's very, very, very hard. But then one, once he figures out how powerful he is, right at, the end of the, right at the end of the film, he figures out how powerful he is. And this, this Agent Smith that has been almost impossible to defeat. Once Neo finds out how powerful he is, he's able to fight Agent Smith with one arm. And he, while he's doing so, he's looking around the room. He's casually disinterested in Agent Smith because he is so powerful. In fact, the sign of how powerful this character is in this movie is the fact that he can defeat his enemies without even lifting a finger. This is what's happening in Luke 2. Is you've got Caesar Augustus and we think Jesus has to show up powerful and, and what God is showing, he's like, no, God is so powerful, Caesar Augustus is so much as of nothing or less than nothing, Jesus as God in the flesh as a baby can defeat Caesar with one arm while looking around the room at other things. It's not a display of God's weakness. It's a, it's a display of God's power. God being a baby is more powerful than the most powerful man who in this point in history had ever lived. That's the contrast. That should blow our minds. The power of Rome is contrasted with the power of God who as a baby still outstrips Rome's power by a large margin. How Jesus' journey begins. The world of Jesus is a world of, of intrigue and military power. And Jesus has no need because of his strength to engage in such machinations. Let's look at verses 4 and 5. Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed. She was with child. How Jesus' journey begins, now we look at the people with Jesus. Jesus associates with unexpected people. Of course, the line of Caesar Augustus was established through power and intrigue. 
What's interesting is Caesar Augustus and Jesus have this in common. They were adopted. Octavian was not the son of Julius Caesar. Octavian had been adopted by Julius Caesar because he wanted Octavian to be heir to his power and his estate. And so when Julius Caesar was assassinated at two Brutus. Some of you guys have got to read a history book, okay? <laughs> the history nerds find that one hilarious. All right, okay. Once he was assassinated, Octavian now takes over his estate as the adopted son. And so he takes this estate that he has inherited, this powerful and significant estate, and he expands on it. Julius Caesar certainly was powerful, but Octavian, renamed Augustus Caesar, expands it and expands his power and expands the Roman Empire. And, and of course, once he uh, eliminates his two uh, foes, he becomes this powerful person. So you have the line of Octavian, this powerful and privileged line. And then you have the line of, well, of Joseph. This is not a line of privilege. It does, in fact, as we look at the genealogies in both Luke and Matthew, this line does, in fact, go through the line of King David, which is powerful and, and glorious and, and beautiful. But what does the line of David mean in the first century? It means nothing. It, it means less than nothing. Caesar inherited a powerful birthright. Jesus was heir to the kingdom of Israel, of David, which at this point in history wouldn't even get you a discount at McDonald's. The people in Jesus' life were powerless. They were powerless in the face of the government. They were powerless in the face of society. Jesus was born into a family that could not help exalt him. Octavian, Augustus, was born into a family designed to exalt him. Jesus' family couldn't help exalt him. The one thing he had, though, and this was to fulfill the promises of God through the prophets, he was born of the line of David. So J Joseph, verse 4, went up from Galilee, from Nazareth. So they were living in Nazareth, which is to the north of uh, Galilee, by uh, north in Galilee, near the Sea of Galilee, and made their way down to Bethlehem, which is just a few miles south of the city of Jerusalem. Nazareth was at that time a very small town, very insignificant. Now it's a relatively large city. Back then it, it was very, very small. In fact, it was a place you would kind of go to hide. It was built into the, these two mountainsides that came together and you really had to know where you were going to find it and that was sort of by design. It was intended to be a place that you went to when you didn't want to be found. So they left Nazareth and they had to go all the way to Bethlehem because they were at the uh, they were at, had to operate on the whims of Caesar and Quirinius. But why is Caesar having everybody registered? Well, he's doing this because he wants to make sure he gets all of his taxes. So Joseph and Mary, because they got to make sure Caesar gets all his taxes, are going to make their way down to the city of Bethlehem. And the reason he has to go there is because Jesus is going to be born the son of David in the city of David. Jesus is king. He is born as prophet, prophesied in the city of David. What does Jesus inherit from Joseph? He inherits the line of David. Jesus fulfills all the prophecies about him, that he is the king in the line of David that is to come. But we have to understand, nobody is standing around waiting for the king of Israel to be born. 
This is not a big thing. He has inherited from Joseph something that at this point means practically nothing. I mean, pay attention to it. Caesar has so much power, he can make the entire world travel. He can make everybody leave and go, go somewhere else for a weekend. Jesus, on the other hand, is born of the line of David. The line of David at this point can't even ask for a mail-in registration. Here's what we have to understand, though. Because we might be tempted to think this is showing us that Jesus was operating at the whims of Caesar. The exact opposite is what is happening. Jesus here is making Caesar do what he needs done. Because Jesus must be born where? Bethlehem. But Jesus, in Mary's womb, is not in Bethlehem. He's in Nazareth. And so Jesus, this powerful God, God of the universe, doesn't just tell Joseph, wake up one day, hey, you know what would be fun, Mary? Let's take a trip to Bethlehem. She's pregnant. You know what she would have said? No. You go to Bethlehem, probably better for both of us. She wouldn't have, that wouldn't have happened. So what Jesus does is he, because he's king of the universe, upends the world to fulfill his prophecy. See, what, what we might do, we might read verses 4 and 5 and think, think, holy cow, Joseph is functioning at the whims of Caesar. And what's happening as we discover in reading this is Caesar is functioning at the whims of Jesus. This unseen, no one cares journey that Joseph and Mary is taking, God has accomplished through the power of Caesar and Caesar doesn't have any control over it. He doesn't know this. This is exactly what's happening. Jesus was born as king of the Jews, apparently heir to a powerless kingdom, but in fact heir to the most powerful kingdom. Micah chapter 5, beginning in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose coming, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. When was Jesus' birth in Bethlehem planned? Before the creation of the world. Jesus decided to be born in Bethlehem before there was a planet on which Bethlehem could exist. When did Augustus decide to do what he's going to do? A week ago. A month ago. His plans could not go beyond his own life. Whereas the plan of God to save humanity through the line of David, through Jesus, has been going on for all of time. The powerful one in this scenario is Jesus, and Jesus is operating with people who seem powerless and insignificant and unknown, but this is where God is accomplishing his purposes. Jesus is associating with unexpected people, people like Mary and Joseph and the shepherds and the wise men, because God doesn't need important people like Caesar, because the important person is God, that is Jesus. Let's look at the last couple of verses. Verses 6 instead of Luke chapter 2. How Jesus begins, journey begins, of course, the birth of Jesus. While they were there, you're aware, they're still in Bethlehem. You understand this. The time came for her to give birth. She gave birth to her firstborn son. 
Again, if you're going to describe giving birth, is that, I mean, it's stating all the facts. Obviously, I mean, I don't want to be rude, but written by a man, clearly, right? <laughs> oh, yeah, she's give birth. I mean, what's the big deal? <laughs> Wrapped them in swaddling cloths, laid them in a manger. There was no place for them in the inn. Jesus, the birth of Jesus. Jesus pursues glory on a path of humble service and suffering. It's not that Jesus isn't pursuing glory. He is the God of glory. But we have to understand what we're discovering about Jesus, the way his, his journey begins, is that he is showing us he is going to pursue his glory on a path of humble service and even suffering. Unlike Octavian Augustus, he was not born into privilege and status. See, Octavian... Caesar Augustus, his life was a riches to greater riches story. The story we all love to read about, right? Riches to riches, privilege to more privilege, power to even more power, glory to even more glory. That was Octavian's story. Jesus' story is not a rags to riches story, is it? What is it? It's a rags to worn out rags story. It's a rags to a tomb story. It's Listen, how Jesus' life begins is glorious compared to how it ends. It's born in a, in a manger, but dying on a Roman cross. And this story, though, we might think that Jesus is powerless, but what he accomplished on the cross was the forgiveness of sin for all who would believe. The, the defeat of our enemies, Satan, sin, and death. All of this done, but not in a road to ascending glory, but a road of humble service to those who don't deserve it and those who don't get it. And in fact, not only humble service, but suffering. And Philippians chapter 2 tells us that his glory came when his work of humble service was done. Most of us want to live like Octavian, Caesar Augustus, where we accomplish God's purpose with ever-increasing levels of glory. Jesus, on the other hand, accomplishes his purposes through ever-increasing levels of humble service and, in fact, suffering. Jesus accomplishes his plans to save the world and to bring forgiveness of sin in the most understanded way possible. Jesus is king. We have to understand this. Jesus didn't become king. Jesus is king. Even as a baby in that little manger, Jesus is king. But he exercises his power over Satan, over sin, over death, over the world, without any of the political intrigue, without any of the military might. He accomplishes it all by his own power. Isaiah 53, it's a common or familiar passage, but I want to read it. Isaiah 53, I'm just going to read the first four verses so we understand what the prophets told us to expect in this Jesus. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, 
smitten by God and afflicted. Verse 5, it's not on the screen. He was pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities. Jesus was so powerful and is so powerful. He does the work of God in the humblest cir circumstances, in the humblest of ways. There is no need for power. There is no need for glory, worldly glory. There is no need for exaltation or recognition. He is merely in humble service and suffering, faithful to, to the purpose of God. Well, we should understand here when we contrast Jesus with this Caesar Augustus, many of us might assume that we would prefer this glorious king that we can look up to and honor and esteem. But the reality is Jesus' humble birth, which tells us what his life is going to be like, gives hope for those of us who need hope. We might think that someone like Caesar Augustus is what would give us hope. He, he doesn't. Because someone like Caesar Augustus is out for one person. Who is that? Caesar Augustus. And you will experience blessing and prosperity as long as it serves the intention of that king. And he can only deliver it as long as he maintains his power, which he cannot do for very long because he's a human. And he did, in fact, die at some point. Jesus, on the other hand, is one who offers hope. First of all, he is powerful enough to give hope. Secondly, he does so by humbly serving those who don't deserve it. He is the kind of king that can give hope. The Bible makes it clear he is the only kind of king that can give hope. And that's what his birth tells us. It's trying to tell us we don't need another Caesar Augustus. It's trying to tell us we need a, a king who serves humbly and suffers. And we already have it. We have this Jesus. This powerful, unstoppable and yet humble enough to stoop down to the neediest of people, which is everyone. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all need a Savior who will stoop to us and is powerful enough to save us. This is Jesus. 1 John 4. Little children. That's rude. It's also accurate. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. That takes faith to believe that, but that's what your Bible says. Jesus is greater. There might be one or two of us here today that feel like the world is stacked against you. That the world was designed to ruin you. That it's out to get you. I wish I could say you're wrong. You might be overstating it. But hope is not in convincing ourselves that the world is actually for us. Hope is found in this verse when we look at our king and we say the world might be stacked against us but our king is better. Our king is greater. Our king is stronger than the world, than anything that's in the world. When we trust Christ, we have hope. Isaiah 49, 23, you'll have to jot that down and check it later. Those who hope in me, listen, this is what your Bible says, because you look like Bible people. Those who hope in me will not be disappointed.
That's the NIV, ESV, will not be put to shame. Those who hope in the Lord will not be disappointed. Here's all I want to challenge you with in that regard, looking at our powerful Savior who is so powerful he could defeat Caesar Augustus from a manger. Trust God a little longer. Keep trusting. A day is coming when you will be vindicated. Your trust will be shown what it actually is. Everyone will notice, oh, that's what it was up to. Now we see where this was heading. We're not there yet. But a day is coming when those you trust in the Lord will be vindicated and we will say, we will all agree in that moment, he's right, we weren't disappointed. So let's trust him a little longer, right? Let's just keep going. I don't know what tomorrow holds in the next day or the next week or the next year. But we can say, I've seen what Jesus can do from a manger, so I'm going to trust he can do something else in my life, so let's keep going, let's trust him a little longer. Secondly, when we think about Caesar Augustus and Jesus, we have to recognize this, everyone wants to matter. That's a good thing, everyone wants to matter. God has designed you to matter. That's the way he made you, and so every one of us wants to matter, to have some significance and, and some importance. But the contrast in Luke chapter 2 gives us two ways of doing that. One way of mattering is Caesar's way, the other way of mattering is Jesus' way. And what we're being called to do by faith in Christ is say, we can matter because we're a part of his kingdom, and so mattering here doesn't matter. Jesus and his kingdom is what gives us our purpose. So I don't need my purposes to matter. I don't need my world to matter. I don't need to have that kind of mattering the way Caesar Augustus did. He spent his entire life mattering. And guess what? We're still talking about it. So I guess he hit a home run on that one. But it is still not as big as what Jesus is up to. Jesus is up to remaking the world reconciling to himself lost sinners. And so one of the ways we express faith to God when we say, you know, I'm going to trust Jesus a little longer is to hold a little bit less tightly to the things that we think we must have or be to matter and instead press hard into King Jesus and his purposes to give hope to others, to humbly serve others, to forgive others. To let other people know why we have hope. Why do we have hope? Because we have jobs and homes and a family? No. Those are blessings God has given us. Our hope comes from our King, Jesus. Trusting Jesus means we have something. We are a part of his kingdom which will matter forever. The only way to participate in the kingdom of Jesus is trust him for forgiveness of sin. Which means you recognize that you have rebelled against God and lived your life your way. Which everybody has done. The Bible tells us all have sinned. Everyone lives their life for themselves. The reason is we spend quite a bit of time with ourselves. It's almost like we're with ourselves our entire life. The result is we sort of end up thinking our life is about us. I mean, that's pretty much normal, isn't it? I'm surprised you guys thought it was about you. It's about me. Everybody should know this. That's what I've been trying to convince people of. And that's sin. That's sin. This life isn't about us. We're too small. Your life is too small for you to be about your life. You need something bigger than that. And you need something that recognizes you need a relationship with God that's based on righteousness. And so what Jesus does, his, his birth and his life, his death and his resurrection, through faith gives you the chance to be a part of his kingdom. 
We trust Jesus. He forgives us of everything we've ever done, and he gives us purpose and hope. Unlike Jesus, un, I should say this, unlike the rulers of the world, Caesar Augustus, maybe modern political leaders, Jesus doesn't showboat. The way Jesus saves shows us he doesn't need the glory of this world, does he? He doesn't need the glory of this world. It's too small. His glory is better. And so what he does, and this is the coolest thing, so he therefore is savior for those who have no glory themselves. Jesus is hard to see when our glory is too great. But when our eyes are open that we don't offer that much, that our glory isn't as great as we think it is, Jesus shows us we can participate in his glory through faith. How Jesus' journey began, the world of Jesus. He doesn't work like the world. He doesn't work like Caesar Augustus. The people of Jesus, he associates with unexpected people. In fact, people with no glory, nothing to offer other than the promises of God. Well, I guess he associates with people like us. And I'm thankful for that. The birth of Jesus. Jesus pursues glory on a path of humble service and suffering. And he calls us as his followers to pursue that same glory. God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to celebrate the birth of this king, our king, our savior, during this Christmas season. And as Seth reminded us in the reading today, Lord, the, the rest of your kingdom, the, the Sabbath, sometimes during our celebrations is, is hard to come by. The busyness, the celebrations, the shopping, the family get-togethers, the getting together with friends and Lord, suddenly our, our frantic life, we can lose touch with the peace of God. And we are thankful, God, that when you were born into this world, you didn't save us the way we thought we should have been saved, with power and glory and might. But you came as a baby. You came in the power of the Almighty as a baby, and you saved us through the power of the cross and the open tomb. So God, I am asking in this moment that for those of us who call you our Savior and Lord, you would give us peace and rest. That you have conquered all your enemies and it took no uh, effort whatsoever compared with the effort the enemies were trying to exert. God, I pray that you would give us peace to know how powerful you are and how much you care for us and how you are leading our lives into your glory. God, I would also pray for those who are here who don't know you. That during this time of year, this time of celebration, this time of joy, that you might open their hearts to how you supply hope and peace through Jesus the Savior. And through faith in him, they would have forgiveness of sin. God, we pray as we celebrate this year, you would be glorified. And we are grateful, God, for all you have provided us that we may celebrate uh, with such joy. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand up as we close with a song?